0: This is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. All right, well we are in week number 2 of our series that we kicked off last week called The Bible Doesn't Say That. Now, as many of you guys know, the Bible is the number 1 best-selling book of all time. But it may surprise you to find out it is best selling book of the year almost every single year. With over its projected six billion copies distributed throughout the world in multiple languages, the Bible is the most prolific book that's ever been distributed on the face of the earth. However, although you may own a copy of the Bible, um, I own definitely more than one copy, although you may own it, it's also, in America, maybe the least read book that we own. It's not the book that you tend to go to. It's not the book that people have read, and a lot of people are book Bible owners, but they're not necessarily Bible readers. So every year there's this group called the American Bible Society, and they release what they call the state of the Bible. It's kind of like the president has the state of the union. They're like, well, what's the state of the Bible? Are people reading the Bible? Are they not reading the Bible? How are people engaging with the Bible? And so in their report, I was really blown away to find out that during covid uh, I thought that, like, Bible reading might increase, that people might be searching for, like, answers or, like, looking to God. But according to the American Bible Society, roughly 26 million people had either mostly or completely stopped reading the Bible during COVID-19. And that begged the question for the American Bible Society to say, well, why is that? And they believed that part of it was because people were not attending church But then it was like, well, people on our survey, when they say they're, quote, reading the Bible, what do they mean? Does that mean that they're reading along with the pastor only on Sunday morning? Or does it mean something different? And so as they began to delve into that, they found that some people uh, who, quote, claim to read the Bible were not actually reading the Bible in any type of, they had no method to it. They weren't reading it from cover to cover. They weren't reading it by book. A lot of them were just taking their Bible and then they were like flopping it open. And then they were like closing their eyes and saying, God, direct my finger. And then they're pointing at a verse and they're reading that and believing that that was going to speak to them. And that was how they were reading the Bible. So they never had any concept of like the concepts of the Bible or the picture of what was going on they just were kind of getting bits and pieces of it and so others of them they began to find out didn't read the bible except when they needed it as like a reference book so the bible for a lot of people became like you might use a dictionary or an encyclopedia it's not a book that you would read from beginning to end like can you imagine reading the dictionary from beginning to end Oh, my goodness. And some people feel that way about the Bible. And so they don't read it unless there's something that comes up and they're curious about a topic or an idea or a story. Then they would go and they would use it as a reference book. And so I've been thinking about that this week, about how we sometimes approach the Bible. And I remembered that in my wife's van, because we are a family and we are not ashamed to drive a family caravan, sliding power doors. It's so good so good. No judgment here. Soccer mom all the way. I don't drive it. My wife drives it. Um, (laughs) Inside of the glove compartment, there is this nice leather case. And inside of that leather case, if you open it up, is the owner's manual for the vehicle. And you know what? That owner's manual is full of truth. It has lots of important things to say. But can I tell you something? I've never read it. I never look at it. I didn't sit down when I bought the van and be like, I'd better take a moment to make sure I understand what I'm doing here. I assumed I know how to run this thing. No big deal. And then you own the vehicle for like six months and all of a sudden you see something that you hadn't seen before and you're like, what is that? And you either find a new button or you find like a new storage drawer or you find something and you're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea this was here. Or More common is the radio doesn't work like you want it to, and you're like, how do I fix this? How do I get this to work? And then you know what you do? You go to that wonderful leather case that's never been opened, and you pull out that owner's manual, and then you thumb through it, and you find exactly the only page that you need that talks about the radio, and you read just that part, and then you fold it up, put it back, and you put it away. That's how so many people use the Bible, We don't use the Bible. We're not reading through the Bible. It's this thing that I'll go to. Oh, no, my marriage is falling apart. I better go and find some verses about that. Oh, no, my kids are acting up. What's the Bible say about obedience? Oh, no, the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. We have a political year next year. What's the Bible say about that? And so we go and we pick and choose little verses here and there, and we kind of build our theology on that versus actually reading the whole of what God said. And here's what happens, right? When we do that, when we kind of have this little picking and choosing and reading here and there, and I'm only kind of living on a verse of the Bible, uh, verse of the day, every day, all right, here's what happens is you don't see the bigger picture. And if we're not careful, we can begin to believe that there are things that the Bible says that the Bible actually doesn't say. Last week, we talked about a phrase that a lot of people believe was in the Bible that not, God helps those who help themselves, Uh, There was a report that came out that that was the number one verse that people claim to love. Well, it's not a verse. It's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, Maybe you grew up and your mom told you to go clean your room. And then she put this little line on there. and She's like, you better clean your room because cleanliness is next to godliness. And then you've grown up thinking, well, that must be in the Bible. That sure sounds like something the Bible would say. But the Bible doesn't say that. And so we have to be careful because sometimes we embrace things that we think the Bible says, but because we don't really know the Bible, we can kind of be off. And so we're not here to to judge you. We're not here to, like, embarrass you or to shame you with your Bible knowledge. But we're here just to think more deeply about what we believe and in the process learn what the Bible really says. And so today, what I want to talk about is what is perhaps the most quoted Bible verse by those outside of the church. Those who who don't follow Jesus, those who aren't in church on a Sunday, they they would quote this verse more than any other verse. Now, I would like for them to be quoting like John 3.16. How many know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Is that the verse that they're quoting? No. All right. I would love for them to be quoting uh, 1 John 1, 9 that says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That would be a good verse for them to quote, wouldn't it? They ain't quoting that one either. What verse are they quoting? Matthew 7, 1. And they always do it in some kind of old English dialect, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. That's what they say, isn't it? Judge not, lest ye be judged. In a modern translation, it reads this. Is a, it says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. And the next verse goes on to say, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. People who don't believe What the Bible says, people who don't care about Jesus, they like this verse. They embrace this verse. I'm all about this verse. And when all of a sudden you're having a conversation with people, they throw this Bible dart at you because they say, hey, judge not lest ye be judged. Why do they do that? Well, here's why. It's because people mistakenly believe that this verse means that you have no right to tell me how to live. Don't you tell me how to live. Judge not, lest ye be judged. I'll do what I want with my life, and you do what you want with your life. It doesn't matter what I do as long as it makes me happy, and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. So, hey, live and let live to each their own. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Jesus' words in this verse, they're quoting the verse correctly, right? Do not judge or you will be judged as well. They're not misquoting it. It is in the Bible. But the meaning that they're ascribing to Jesus' words, well, the Bible doesn't say that. And here's here's why I believe that this verse is quoted by those outside of the church. It's because it seems to support one of the most widespread values in our culture today. What's that value? Tolerate everything. Tolerate everything. Tolerate every kind of behavior. Tolerate every kind of belief system. Tolerate everything. And so those who believe that you have no right to say if something is right or wrong who feel like you should just mind your own business and stay out of their lives, will throw this verse in your face. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. So there's no denying Jesus said this verse, Matthew 7-1. We're definitely quoting the Bible. There's no denying Jesus said it. But what did Jesus mean? What was he trying to communicate? Were, were, Were these words spoken by Jesus to give license to all sorts of behavior? Did Jesus actually mean that we are to never judge anyone ever? I mean, if so, if that's what Jesus meant, then no teacher has the right to judge a performance or an essay. Who is it to say that that's an A or a B or a C or a D or an F? Who do you think you are, teacher? You should not judge if Jesus is prohibiting all judgment then no teacher should judge a student's work in football there's a football game today who are the rest to say that that was a holding call who are the rest to say that that was past interference who are they to judge if we're going to take Jesus word seriously judge not hey they need to never throw a yellow flag ever again Mm mm-hmm If we take Jesus' words just at face value, what right does a judge in a court of law have to hold me accountable to a crime or not? Who's he to deliver judgment upon me? Oh, you're going to put me before a jury? Oh, who are these people to judge me and determine whether I'm innocent or I'm guilty? Is that what Jesus is saying here? I think we would all probably agree that on some level, yeah, maybe we are allowed to, to judge. Let me ask you some questions just to poke the bear a little bit. Do you have the right to judge someone's haircut? Yeah, just a haircut. I can't believe that they did that to their hair. Is that okay? Is that not okay? Do you have the right to judge that? What do you think? Okay, Uh, what if it's your kid's haircut? And what if your, 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 your son wants to get some vulgar words etched into the side of his hair? Okay, do you have the right to, to speak into that? Or, or, or do you not judge? What if some random married guy at your work is like really flirty? Do you have the right to speak into his life and say, hey, bro, you're married? Or do you not have the right to do that? What if that married guy is uh, your best friend? What if he's going to church with you? What if he's being flirty with other people in the church? Do you have a right to speak into his life, or are we to never judge? Let's try this one. Our culture says that anybody can have sex with anybody, right? That's what culture says. You can have sex with anybody. Okay. What if someone wants to have sex with a 12-year-old? Do you have the right to speak into that, or do you say, I? Can't judge that. What, what if the 12-year-old they're wanting to have sex with is your child? Do you have the right to speak into that, to judge that? Matthew 7.1, it says, do not judge or you too will be judged. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says this? What is he trying to say? And I think that whatever he's trying to say is important because, well, it was Jesus after all who said it. So I think that we have to take it, Seriously, what he's trying to say, but I think we also need to dive into really what is he trying to communicate. It's important, but it's also maybe a bit complicated. As some of you know, after I graduated high school, I enrolled in Bible college at the age of 18. And after 2 years of Bible college, they issued me what was called an associate's of biblical studies. Apparently, I was somewhat trained in how to study the Bible. And one of the classes that they take you through is a word that you've probably never heard of called hermeneutics. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to teach you how to rightly divide the Word of God to actually accurately interpret what God's Word is saying to you. And inside of these hermeneutics courses that I would take, they were always encouraging me to practice exegesis. And some of you are like, did you just say exit Jesus? No. No. Not exit Jesus, but exegesis. And here's what exegesis means. It means that what we want to do as we approach God's word is that we want to try to draw truth out of the text. I'm looking at the t- text, and from the text I'm drawing truth. And what I was warned and discouraged from doing what is called eisegesis. And eisegesis is where you are reading into the text what it is that you want to see. See, when I approach God's word with my own value system, then I kind of pick and choose what I want to support me and to support what I want. So for instance, if I was an atheist, I might want to say, you know, Psalm 14.1 is how I base my beliefs. And it says that there is no God. Now, the problem with this is that I've taken a verse out of context. We're not paying attention to what happened before it. We're not paying attention to what happened after it. We're not looking at the theme. We're not looking at what's going on at all. I just pulled one part of this because if I put it in context, Psalm 14.1 actually says that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Oh, well, that changes the meaning a lot. Yes. And when we take Matthew 7.1 and we put it in context, it's going to have a different meaning than the way our world has viewed it. So how do we properly approach biblical interpretation? I'm going to give you just three three quick points here on biblical interpretation, and then we're going to take these three things and we're going to apply it to Matthew 7, 1, and then we'll send you guys into regroups to talk about this. So number one, what we need to do when we're going to have biblical interpretation correctly is we need to understand the context, okay? Context is paramount. We want to know not just what the verse says, but what is coming before the verse, what's after the verse, who wrote the verse, to whom was it written, what is the major theme, what is God trying to say through the author. We want to understand the context. We don't want to just pull a verse out of context to make it say whatever we want it to say. We want to understand what the original author intended when he wrote this. Number two, when we approach biblical interpretation, we want to interpret scripture with other scriptures. This is really important. In other words, the best way to understand what the Bible is, is with the Bible. We're not going to just take one verse out and build a life theology around verse, but instead we're going to take a verse and we're going to look at it with other verses. And what these other verses say about that similar theme. And we're going to build our theology over the consistency of what over 40 different authors wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, we're going to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And number three, final thing as we're looking at scripture, is that we're going to apply what we learn. We're not just looking at it to look at it. We're not just having fun. This isn't homework. It's not schoolwork. We're trying to take what God has revealed about himself, and we're trying to put it to practice in our life because the driving force that we believe is that he knows life better than we do. We believe he created it. Well, he can speak into it. He understands it better than we do. So I want to know what, God, do you have to say about life so when I look at your word, I can apply it. There's a saying, you may have heard it, I kind of like it. It says that the Bible is not a book so much to be studied as much as it is God's letter to us to be lived. We, we have to come to the place of taking what we're studying and learning and actually putting it into practice. So we're going to do this this morning with Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. We'll look at it again. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All right, question, what comes before Matthew 7? Matthew 6, you guys are so good. It wasn't even a trick question. It's just, it's what happened before it. It was so good. Um, You may not know this, but Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are all red letters in your Bible. And red letters indicate what? Jesus is speaking, like these are the words of Jesus himself. And what we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is this is Jesus' longest recorded discourse. Uh, It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So he is in a big discussion. He's in a big dialogue here. So if we pull one part of it out, we don't really know the context of it until we kind of know what he's saying. What are the themes that he's talking about? So if we back up to Matthew 6, one of the big themes that Jesus is talking about is hypocrisy. And Jesus was kind of railing on the Pharisees, which was this religious elite group, for their hypocrisy. So if we look at Matthew 6, uh, verse two, it says, so so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Uh, verse five says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And verse 16, it says, when you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do. This theme of hypocrisy is underlining everything that Jesus is saying. The flow of his teaching is all about hypocrisy. And when we get to Matthew 7 We eventually find in verses 15 and 16, right? So we're jumping over where we talked about do not judge. Jesus says this. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And it's by their fruit that you will recognize them. Well, wait a second. Jesus, I thought that I wasn't supposed to judge. How can I discern who is a false prophet? How can I make a judgment call on someone's life? Oh, by the fruit, I can recognize them. By the fruit. I have to make a judgment call? It's in this very same chapter that Jesus says, do not judge. He's actually implying that we're to actually make a judgment. So, so what is Jesus saying? Is he speaking out both sides of his mouth? Is he being a hypocrite? Well, the answer is no. And so I think we need to, to make sure we don't miss this. Jesus is not telling us that we should not live with discernment. He isn't telling us that we never have the right to speak into the lives of other believers. What he's telling us is that we should be very, very careful to not judge hypocritically. So look at this verse in context. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The very next verse says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take out this speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Hmm. Context brings meaning. In other words, you need to help your brother see more clearly, but you first need to look in the mirror. Don't pick apart other people's little faults when you've got issues, big issues, in your own life. Don't judge hypocritically. When Jesus says do not judge, he's not giving people a license to sin. Rather, these words are intended to cause believers to pause and consider the motive behind their words and actions before calling others out in their sin. So how do we judge properly? How do we judge correctly? Jesus isn't banning judgment, but he's telling us rather how we should judge. Let me give you... Four guidelines for correctly judging. Number one, we should never judge superficially. That that is that we should not base our judgment on the outward appearance of others, what's on the surface, what we can see. If we're honest, we all struggle a little bit with prejudice, right? Prejudice, break the word down, prejudge. We prejudge people all day long. As soon as somebody's coming up, I haven't met them before, I'm prejudging them. I'm paying attention to their haircut. I really am. I'm paying attention to how they look. I'm paying attention to their clothes. I'm paying attention to what car they got out of. I'm paying attention to how cleanly they are. I'm paying attention to how they talk. I'm paying attention to all sorts of things about them and I am judging them before they've ever really even opened their mouth and introduced themselves to me. I have a thought in my head about where they go. If you have a friend that's gonna introduce somebody to you, you've already prejudged them because that friend of yours is a friend with them and that already puts them into a certain category for you because that friend isn't gonna have certain kind of friends and you know. So we prejudge, we do this all the time. It's happening without us realizing it. We prejudge people. And what are we judging? We're judging superficially. We're judging on based on not even reality. We're just judging it based on our preconceived ideas of what somebody's going to be like based upon some outward indication. Maybe it's their clothing, cleanliness, attractiveness, facial expressions. It could be any of those things. But here's what John chapter 7, verse 24 says. And this, again, is Jesus' words. He says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Yeah, nobody quotes that verse. No, no, I thought it was judge not. No, Jesus says judge correctly. We want to judge correctly. Number two, never judge superficially. Number two, never judge hypocritically. When we point out sin in others, we need to make sure that we're not doing the same thing. Otherwise, we're just condemning ourselves, according to the Bible. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 and 4, it says this. It says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourselves for you who judge others do these very same things. Verse 4 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, Impatient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Listen, we cannot accuse others and excuse ourselves. We cannot judge others as if we have the authority of someone who is perfect. Part of judging correctly, if we're going to do what Jesus says in John chapter 7, is that we must first deal with our own sin, then we can see clearly to help others who are caught in sin. Judging others can become sinful behavior when we judge with pride, no compassion, and we belittle other people. Judgment like this can harden our hearts, increase our arrogance, and can hurt those that we judge. And never miss this. Some of your harshest judgments often reveal some of your greatest weaknesses. The thing I'm dredgy most about is stuff that, yeah, I kind of struggle with. So we want to judge correctly, not superficially, not hypocritically. But number three here is we never want to hold non-Christians, people who don't hold to our faith, to Christian standards. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But we do this sometimes. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? No, well, it's not my business. Are, 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 you, are you not to judge those inside? Yeah. Verse 13 says, God will judge those outside. I don't know why we're shocked when non-Christians act like non-Christians. It would be surprising if a non-Christian acted like a Christian. Like, what's going on here? Sometimes we come across and we tell non-Christians, like, hey, you should never act like that. And they think, like, what are you talking about? And in addition, I've seen you. (laughs) Uh, You're not perfect either. One of the primary reasons that people step away from the faith, and we talked about this in our, our last series, is that people feel that Christians are judging them, and it's hypocritical. And they're not even claiming to be a Christian, but they're getting this judgment put upon them. When someone's not a Jesus follower, they're not going to hold the Christian standards, and we need to not judge those outside the church. Instead, what are we supposed to do with people outside of the church? Oh, yeah, we're to love them. We're to love them, not correct them. Oh, that's really hard, Pastor Alex. I know. I know. How do we love them? I'm not here to correct them. If I correct them, does that change anything? Like is it oh, oh I corrected them. Now they love Jesus. No. No. Now they just don't like you. <laughs> you are to love them. If um if you're to come to my house, I've got three boys. They're part of the more household. They're more boys. And the more boys have certain ways that the more boys are expected to act. There's certain house rules that we have, there's certain family things that we have. Now, if if Melissa's kids, the Gachuris, come over, and they're going to maybe spend the night at the house, the Gachuris don't know the more boys' rules. They don't know the family rules. And it would be weird and unusual for me to try to hold her boys to my standards that I would have for my boys in my house because they don't know that. They're a different family. And in the same way if my boys went over to her house, it's a whole different thing. We have different family rules. We have different things that we expect. When we are dealing with those who are outside of the faith, we need to treat them as though they're outside of the faith. They're not a part of our family rules. But when it comes to our family, yeah, I'm going to have conversations with my boys that I'm never going to have with Melissa's boys. Just not going to happen. Because we are in this family, and there's certain ways that we behave. There's certain ways that we handle ourselves. There's certain values that we have. And this is how we're going to treat ourselves. And if you, Max or Miles or Micah, aren't living up to this, yes, I'm going to come and bring correction. I'm going to bring help to you. But I'm not correcting people outside of the family. Does that make sense? Same thing when we come into this Christian faith. We need to stop trying to change people who are outside of the faith, and instead we need to introduce them to a God who can change them. Number four, if we're going to judge correctly, number four, we always need to help other believers who have fallen be restored. God formed the church, which is us, for community, accountability, and honesty. Don't miss this. What are we formed for? Community, doing life together, accountability, holding each other in check, and honesty. We're not deceiving one another. We're not lying. We're not wearing masks in here. And before you start thinking about other believers who may fall, I want you to recognize that you may fall into sin at some point in time or another. And as believers, we must be willing to submit ourselves to the community for accountability and be honest if we ever want to grow and mature in our faith. If you fall into sin, I hope, number one, that you want to be restored, right? Always help Other believers who have fallen be restored. Number one, that fallen believer should have a desire to be restored. If you fall into sin, if you struggle with something and you screw up, the hope would be that you would submit yourselves to the church, not hide it, but rather say, no, I messed up. I need your help and accountability. Susie Nichols, can I ask you a question? Okay, Susie Nichols, um, I'm coming off the stage here. Pastor Stan and Susie, these are like my youth pastors, and they're like awesome people, and so I love them. And so like part of like my Christian faith and belief systems has been like example for their lives. And Susie is always very honest and transparent and open. And so um, I don't remember the specific details. Um, I don't want to misspeak. How about that? I do remember details, but I don't want to misspeak about when you first came to Christ, and you're part of a small group of people, and it's not a group of people that you would normally have associated with, but you, you end up there, and there were some things that you had done maybe the night before. Can you just, like, real quickly tell that story? So, I was in a group, I was probably 23, 24 years old, and I just became a new Christian from coming out from a very wild lifestyle. And all the people in my group were at least 40 or older, have been in the church their whole lives. And I did something the night before that I shouldn't have done. And I had been reading my Bible. I really took Christianity seriously. And when I went to that group the next day, I confessed my sin. I told them exactly what I did. And they all like totally freaked out and couldn't believe that I told them what I just did. And I asked for prayer. And, yeah, it was pretty, like, crazy. <laughs> but I believe the Bible's true, so I did what it said. Yeah. And that's what we want. Like she, she, you guys got the PG version there. <laughs> Youth ministry, we were getting a different version of that. What she did the night before, yeah, it opened some people's eyes. They could not believe what she had done. As a teenager, I couldn't believe that she had done that either. But then she was willing to go to this group of people and to say, hey, I need accountability, I need help, I messed up this way. That heart and desire is what we all should have. If you fall into sin, this is not a good place for you. Don't be so arrogant and prideful to not go and ask for help. Now, we can all respond better than her small group did, (laughs) okay? At least they did pray for her. They weren't sure what to do, but they prayed for her, okay? When in doubt, just pray. Then call the pastor. All right, so when we have to realize that we all at some point in time, this is gonna be us. We're gonna fall into sin, and when you fall into sin, how you respond is a really big deal. You can either hide or you can own it and you can move forward. If you hide, you're just like Adam and Eve in the garden. God's going to eventually come around and say, hey, where are you? Did God know where they were? Uh, it was God. Uh, yeah. Hey, hey, you behind the bush over there. Yeah. <laughs> There's no use hiding. What we need to do is we need to be honest. And when we are able to be honest and to be able, like, can you even imagine bringing your sin to a community of people and allowing them to love you. We hear Jesus say that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, but we never quite understand that. We think that just means we should go to weddings and funerals. No. <laughs> when people are hurt and damaged by their own choices, even if it's their own fault, can we come and can we mourn their sin with them? Can we care for them? Can we as a family move forward? Man, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Paul has this to say about the process of restoration in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It's a key word, key word. Don't miss it. But there's a warning here. You need to watch yourselves or you too may be tempted. As someone that we love is going contrary to God's word, that is called sin. And those who live by the Spirit should do what to that person? Gossip about them? Kick them while they're down? Shoot the wounded? No. What do we do? You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. With the same grace you would like to be shown, you show to them with the same love you would like to be shown you show to them with the same grace that god gave you you give that grace to them and you restore them you help them back on the right path you do it with love you do it with compassion and you do it with grace and when you do this the very next verse paul says it's so beautiful he says carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of christ Jesus said to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, hey, you'll actually do that. Some of us have had medical tests done, and sometimes those tests come back and indicate that we're in a state of unhealth. And it's sometimes in those moments that our doctors have to have a very frank conversation with us to pinpoint the behaviors or activities that may be contributing to our illness. And based on their knowledge and their experience, they then offer suggestions and guidelines for us to follow. And when a doctor warns a patient of the risks of an unhealthy lifestyle, they're not casting judgment on that patient. Rather, they're encouraging their patient to be more mindful of their choices so they can avoid more serious and potentially life-threatening consequences down the line. We need to realize there's a difference between judgment and accountability, especially within the confines of the church family. As believers, we're not given license to sin. We are called to live holy and upright lives, not only to serve as witnesses of the gospel, but also to safeguard ourselves from the dangers and natural consequences that come from living a life of sin. We need to help restore those who desire to be restored. Jesus said, do not judge, or you too will be judged. He didn't say we never have the right to speak into someone else's life. That is cultural eisegesis interpretation of that verse. That is not what the totality of the Bible says. The Bible teaches us don't judge superficially because that's stupid and dangerous. Don't judge hypocritically. Your harshest judgment often reveals your greatest weakness. Never hold someone outside the family of God to family standards. But when someone in the family starts to get in trouble, we love them too much to let them hurt themselves. The same grace that has been given to us, we give to them. And as we use truth to bring them back on the path of righteousness, the truth of Jesus is what will set them free. And that's how we accurately interpret the word of Jesus. That's how we're going to see healing, restoration, And people find the same grace that transforms us. If you would, let's bow our heads. Jesus, I thank you for your great patience and kindness to us. And as we read today, your kindness is to lead us to repentance, to a changing of our minds, a change of direction. I ask, Lord, that the words that were spoken today would help shape and form your people to function like your people. May we not read the Bible with our own cultural value system, but, Lord, may we instead come to the text and ask for you to reveal truth to us, and may we be willing to release anything that does not align with you. And, Lord, as I do that, and as each person in this room does that, I believe your Holy Spirit will bring us into a place of unity, into a place of love, into a place of of allowing your light and love to shine through us that the world won't be able to ignore it. I ask, Lord, that you would help us be formed into the people that you've called us to be. And, Lord, may we properly interpret your scriptures to where we don't just quote a verse, but, Lord, that we actually embrace the meaning of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.